Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, I want to start by saying a huge thank you to everybody who reached out over the last week. Uh, if you heard the introduction uh, to the Jimmy Carr episode, and um, there were a whole bunch of people who uh, sent me messages, uh, everyone on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash philosophy. I did try to respond, uh, not in great detail. Unfortunately, I don't have the mind space or the time at the moment to respond in great detail, but I did try to say thank you to everybody who messaged me on Patreon. I apologize to those who messaged me in other places, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, I saw all your messages and I appreciate all your messages. Unfortunately, I just can't respond to them all at the moment and by the way i don't think that people who messaged me had the expectation that i would respond i i understand that you were just reaching out to say hello and send your support and i super appreciate that so i just wanted to say thank you here a big general (laughs) thank you for everybody who's reached out um to say hello i really do appreciate that uh if you if this is all news to you um basically the situation is that i've cancelled all my podcasts for the rest of the year uh in regard to what that means for this podcast, for philosophy, you will actually be getting two episodes a week, nearly every week, up until Christmas. Um, more men in a row than I would ordinarily prefer, as I like to have a gender balance or a gender diversity on the show, different experiences. Uh, but unfortunately, because I had to cancel a whole bunch of recordings that I did have up my sleeve, um, we are just cleaning out the cupboard of the banked episodes we have. The good news is that there are lots And so you're going to be getting most weeks, two episodes a week, right up until the end of the year. Then we're going to take a break over January and we'll be back uh, in the final week of January with brand new episodes for 2022. And that will be the same with TOFOP and FOFOP, um, our other podcasts. So we will have a January break as well and be back that same week. So all the podcasts will be about that same week. But in the meantime, over at TOFOPHQ, TOFOP.com, Charlie will be doing some new episodes of TOFOP without me. He will be uh, relying on the extended TOFOP family. So I believe that Podcast Mike is going to pop in for an episode. James Fosdyke is going to pop in for an episode. And I believe that John Deeks might even pop in for an episode. So some cool stuff at TOFOP. And FOFOP, which is our podcast that Charlie and I do with other people, but normally rotate week to week. Uh, Charlie is doing all of those as well. So uh, you can check out all Charlie's interviews at FOFOP. Um, on the tofop.com website there's a really cool chat with adam spencer that he did last week that i really enjoyed listening in on so um charlie clausen doing incredible work covering for me at the moment over at tofop.com and he is also doing a summer series of our afl adjacent podcast two guys one cup with scott dooley so if you would like to hear charlie and scott dooley talking about afl or afl adjacent things you can also hear that at tofop.com so I'm just going to pop in and do the intros for these philosophy episodes up until Christmas, and then I'm going to have a complete break um, from everything altogether, and then we'll be back end of January. So uh, I hopefully will be doing a a new stand-up show in the new year, you know, variants pending, uh, being able to travel over state borders pending and all those sort of things, but I have not done a new stand-up show since 2019. And I've uh, ordinarily done a new stand-up show every year uh, previous to that. So it's something that I would desperately love to do is a brand new show. So hopefully in 2022, um, you might even get to see me out on the road doing what it is that I love to do the most. But 
that feels like a very long way away at the moment. So in the meantime, here's an episode of Philosophy with Simon Kennedy. Who is Simon Kennedy? Uh, well, some of you already know who Simon Kennedy is, but if you don't, he uh, is a great radio broadcaster, voiceover guy, comedic actor, comedian, uh, a guy I mostly know from the stand-up scene and have always enjoyed uh, hanging out with, always enjoyed the conversations that we have had together and uh, has an incredible story to tell, uh, not just the story of his life and his perspective on things, but obviously a story about losing his mum in one of you know the most famous disasters of all time. I won't you know, spoil the story, but I will say that uh, my partner, she saw Simon actually uh, being interviewed around the anniversary of 9-11 on, on ABC Breakfast. And she said to me, she said, have you had uh, Simon Kennedy on the show? you should get him on philosophy. And I was like, you know what? I actually should get Simon Kennedy on philosophy. He'd be a great guest. And he was. He definitely was. So I hope that you're going to enjoy this episode. If you do, um, the best way that you can help out the podcast is go to patreon.com slash philosophy, sign up for as little as a dollar a month, and um, you can send me a message there directly. But also that money goes to pay James Fosdyke for the original artwork and podcast Mike for putting together through for all the episodes, making sure they come out. If you're on the Patreon page, you also get the episodes a day early and ad free. So that's a bit of a bonus. And my hope is that in 2022, I'll be doing some extra stuff over on the philosophy Patreon page. Um but I, I, I am still in the middle of working all that out, so I won't promise too much at this stage. Um, uh, the other thing that you can do is tell people about the podcast, if you like, share it around, and uh, rate and review it, particularly if you're on iTunes. Um, they have ratings down the bottom of your iTunes app. You can just push the five stars, or you could write a nice little review and post that up there. That would be really fantastic and is helpful and helps us with the uh, algorithmic world that we live in to make sure that people are hearing the podcast if it's something that they would like to do. This episode with Simon, Simon, not one of the, you know, the higher profile names that I have on the show, but often, you know, it isn't the higher profile names that you have the best chats with. And I hope that you're going to enjoy this one. So please uh, enjoy this with Simon Kennedy. Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and this is how the show starts. It's pretty simple. I ask my guests who they are. So, who are you? I am Simon Kennedy, and I'm a comedian. I'm a father. I'm a, I'm a writer, and um, not necessarily in that order. So, if you had to, does it does that order change from day to day? Because I'm always the reason I ask this question at the start, Simon, is very much that I like to know when someone is put on the spot to identify who they are how they list the priorities of their life. And I think it is ingrained in us that so often we define ourselves through what it is we do for a job. But I think particularly in this last 18 months, the idea that you can only identify yourself by what you do to be productive to society has been something that has really been shaken up and people have been reprioritizing the order of what defines them and who they are. So if I had to put you on the spot again to order them in the order that you think, at least today, they go in, who is Simon Kennedy? All right. Okay. I, I would say primarily at the moment, I'm a, I'm a father. Uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a teacher, homeschool teacher, um, who doesn't do his job very well. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, a, yeah, I'm, I'm a husband, but I'm, I'm a voiceover artist, which is you know one way I have been able to survive uh, locked in my house. Um, and a comedian. Yeah, I am a comedian. Um, I, I actually changed the, the, 
the um, order of things, depending on what, um, so I guess right now I was on the spot, so I didn't think about it too much, but depending on who the audience is and what, and what what they can do for me, I'll be honest. Yeah. Like if someone says, uh, you know, how would you describe it? Well, I'm a I'm a comedian and a voiceover artist. Thinking that person could probably dish me some of that work, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but on a personal level, I say, yeah, look, I'm a, I'm a I'm a dad. You know, I'm a husband. I'm a you know, I'm a I'm a writer. I'm a, and then and, and then whatever you you want um, from there, because I, I I don't know. I juggle all the balls. Um, which is the most important? I don't know. Now, this is probably not the most elegant way to put this, but when did the ball juggling begin? Did you always think you were going to be a ball juggler? Look, it's easy. Two balls are easy. Um, like when I was a young man uh, and I was, you know, a comedian up and coming and a uh, and, and a, a voiceover guy, which is something I, I, I picked up from my radio days. I stopped calling myself a radio announcer because I didn't like playing um, you know the Venger boys, so I, I went. That's not me. So yeah, it was th- those two balls are easy. Um, then you the, yeah you get into a serious relationship, um, and you get married, and then then you're a husband as well. Then you have kids. Then you're a father. And that that kind of takes over everything because all of a sudden that's actually very important. Like I mean, you know, I can I can annoy people in a comedy room uh, for the night or, or make them happy, but at the end of the night, our relationship's sort of done. Um, with the kids, I've I've got to live with everything that happens there so you know yeah the consequences of every sentence you've got to take your audience home with you totally and you've also got to be your audience's boss and your audience's nurse and your audience's soccer coach and your audience's teacher it's not just one job being a parent you just suddenly have a hundred new jobs yeah or that or i have to be too ic to the person who does all that stuff stuff really (laughs) really really well (laughs) yeah at the very least a strong too ic yeah i'm middle management that's me Okay, Simon Kennedy, middleman. Yeah. I like it. So that's where all the profit is anyway, in the middle. That's you gotta invent those industries that facilitate other industries. So Yeah. I'm that guy in the meeting. I'm that guy in the meeting who uh, takes credit for other people's thoughts and ideas. <laughs> so okay. So you talked about the idea of needing to be a teacher during this time. How many kids do you have? I've got two. Um and they're like this year, um, lockdown year two, they're pretty good at the homeschooling, pretty good at self starting and stuff. A thirteen year old girl and eleven year old boy. Um last year I was right on top of my the boy trying to help and I realised I was more of a hindrance than anything. Like he was just annoyed with me. Um, uh-huh. And uh, and I realised that you know sometimes you just got to stand back and say if you need me I'm here and they and they come. Um, but yeah, sometimes that must be one of the most confronting things I imagine. I don't have children of my own, but obviously a lot of my friends have children, and I see them grow up. And I remember what it was like to be a kid myself. And part of the idea of growing up is almost at some point, and you see it a lot with sort of teenage girls and their mothers. You know, there comes a point. You know, if you have a girl there is probably going to be a very natural point, despite the fact that you're probably going to, you were best friends as kids and you're going to be best friends as adults. There is going to be a real rocky period in their teens where mum is the problem with fucking everything. Now that's a cliche and oversimplification, but you see that played out and you have had to also encounter that thing of going, oh, like I was dad who knew everything and now I'm dad who's annoying Mm. and is a dickhead and needs to get out of the way. Yeah, it's funny when you talk to people about, I wish my dad, you know, had more time with my dad. I wish he paid more attention Mm. to me. And I wonder if this generation, this COVID generation, are going to be, God, I just wish I had more time away from my parents when I was young. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Maybe. 
Well, this might be, because obviously the previous generation have all stayed at home, right? That is the defining factor of that millennial generation. I mean, partly because housing affordability is ridiculous, but partly because there just has been this, you know, a generation of people who were so loved as children that they were like, why would I go out in the world? Everything's awesome here at home. Whereas maybe this generation will be like, I spent a lot of time at home. I'm fucking moving out no matter what. Yeah, like child worship. I don't know. Because like, I, I was really keen to move out as a young bloke. And I think it's because mm. I just wanted to cut loose. Like I was, like my mum would have been annoyed with the number of nights I came home drunk or, or whatever, you know, um, and, and worrying all the time. I think... She probably had to worry less when I moved out because she didn't have to. She didn't know I was heading off to the pub. Didn't know I was doing this, so it wasn't in her face all the time. So, but I was really keen to spread my wings, not because my mum wasn't great or or whatever, just because I wanted my, to do my thing, you know. And I I wonder about you know whether that will will happen or if kids will be like, oh no, I'm going to stay at home forever. I'm like, why would you, you know? <laughs> My parents, I've said this before on the podcast, but my parents very much had the theory that you've got to love your kids enough that they want to stay at home until they finish school, but not love them so much that they want to stay at home after they finish school. That was their very, they were like, that's your sweet spot, right? Yeah. You've got to prepare them to want to leave. Because the kids that stay at home, they grow up with no stories. They have nothing. Like I, I, I was looking at LinkedIn. This is how bored I am, right? I was looking at LinkedIn um, and uh, there's nothing on LinkedIn for anyone, but I was on there and uh, some, you know, I've got a new connection. It was an old flatmate from when I was like 23 or four or something, an old flatmate. And, uh, and I saw this guy's face. First of all, I'm like, geez, he's, he's lost his hair too. And the other one was like, oh, that's the guy that burnt down our apartment that's a guy who started a fire in his bed and we all had to move out and i thought about all that and all the stories that came off that you don't move out you don't get those stories so hi taki if you're watching listening sorry he's in middle management now by the way he's that guy in the meeting he's in the taking meeting. credit for somebody else's idea yeah, now he's burning down the company yeah. <laughs> a very important person to have in a building, the person who can light the matches you or flee the building when the inspectors come. Yeah, so he should have gone to work in, you know, in politics maybe. Have you um uh, put yourself, I mean, I, I imagine you must have, but can you imagine what it would have been like for you at age 11 or age 13 to be in a lockdown situation? Ooh, it would have been interesting. See, at, at 11, we ju I just lost my dad. So uh, he died um, young of a heart attack. And um, that I reckon that would have been uh, fucking terrible. Like, it would have been awful because, you know, and, uh, and then right now there would be, I'm trying to put it on a, on a down note there, but it, would there be families of people out there dealing with some horrendous shit right now yeah. to be locked in and, and not have that wider social connection that, that really... That would suck. And I imagine it would have been a disaster for us as a family. So thank God. I think, I think though, that happened around the AIDS epidemic. Um, so, um, you know, that was, uh, it was in the news all the time, but it was certainly uh, less contagious. Yeah, it wasn't something that you thought, if I step out of the house and go back into society, school, sport, whatever, mm. that you would come in contact no. with. It, it was very much being portrayed as a certain sub- uh, culture of society that was susceptible to that disease. We've later learned yeah. that, that absolutely is not the case, but but yes, it was certainly being portrayed that way. So, um, so you lost your your dad early and and of heart, like a heart related yeah um, 
illness. So did that um, health become defining to you? Because heart is one of those things that is genetic. Like, you know, if people have a history of, it's always one of those things you asked on medical forms. Is there a history of heart disease in your family? Has that influenced you and the health decisions you've made in your life, do you think? Yeah, yeah, it does does now, especially like um, mm. uh, as a young bloke, I you know went pretty wild because you think you're invincible and you just eat and whatever and get fat and drink and stuff like that. But um, but now I pay attention to it. Like I really do. So um, yeah, I, I, you don't want to go down that road. But my dad had, um, he, he was an insurance broker, life insurance broker. He sold life insurance, died with no life insurance, just by the way. Um, you know, like the plumber with a fucking toilet that doesn't work, but um, it's the same thing. Oh no! Um, but he um he, he had a terrible diet. He had an he had a nineteen eighties diet of you know uh-huh. he'd eat whenever and whatever, and it was and he was a big guy. Like so, I, if if I started to look like like he did at the end, you know, with a big barrel of a gut, I'd be like, okay, look out, champ, here we go. But uh, look, I mean, I'm I'm probably uh, at my healthiest. I've ever been right now, to be honest. I don't know how desi- how I design that, but I am. You know, I'm 46. Got oh, look out. Um, yeah, I'm pretty. I'm really healthy, and, and you know, although everything's breaking down, things start to hurt. But whatever. Okay, so you. I mean, so one of my best friends, Charlie Clawson, he lost his dad at a pretty similar age to you, and I'm always interested in you know how it is that that defined him. You know, like he does have. Like, I've always found him to be a person who's very comfortable around women, you know, and I think that part of that is that he just didn't have that dominant dad, you know, role model in the house when, you know, in those sort of formative teen years where, you know, that kind of hormonal blokiness is emerging. He wasn't necessarily in that environment where he had that person he could look to. Um, did, Did it define, I mean, obviously it must define you in many ways, but how do you think you know, losing your dad at that age changed you? Um, look, I am actually really comfortable hanging out with with just women and just being one of the girls, actually. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty comfortable with that. I don't, I'd never describe myself as an alpha, um, although personality-wise, kind of maybe a little alpha. I like to, you know, I like to be the center of attention, as most comics do, I suppose. But, um, but really comfortable around girls. I mean, as a young guy, um, I just wanted to see a lot of girls naked that was just something as a teenager that i was you know that was a dream that kicked in regardless of any advice yeah, you needed that, did, that wasn't <laughs> Some, somehow just one day you realized that yeah. was a high priority in your life yeah, at that point yeah and you know what that is but i mean that is that um don't let it form all of your decisions but um it's a but then um yeah i'm very comfortable i didn't have a sister i had a brother growing up so the only female in my house was my mother mm. um and uh yeah i don't know how that happened and now i um and then i guess at one point i ended up flatting with um a house full of girls actually i became really good at leaving the seat down right yeah you got trained well yeah. for life and now i, I imagine that yeah, see, right? It's one of those things. I'm actually shocked now because I am very well trained in that department. Don't know when it kicked in, but I've always been very good at that. And when I have a male friend over who still leaves the seat up, I am mortally offended like, by that yuck, now. Like if dude. I walk into the bathroom and I'm like, what are you, an animal? Yeah, that's the yucky bit. We shouldn't have to look at that pissy rim. Jesus. That should be hidden by the veil of seat. Uh, how was life you lose your father you know obviously a huge responsibility on your mother at that point like what was your relationship like with your mum you know as a kid during that time 
Oh, look, she was really a really loving mum. But she, um, uh, I mean, she was mortified and devastated when Dad died. Like she, she was crushed, and it took her a, a couple of years to to kind of start getting back to normal. Um, and uh, we all had to. There was nothing was. I mean, nothing was really spoken within the house, but my brother and I just had to, um, I hate the, hate the phrase, man up, um, or become the man of the house or whatever that crap means, but um, that's kind of what had to happen. So we had to kind of grow up pretty quickly. Um, I remember, you know, people saying that at um, bloody um, the funeral even, when I was at you know, 10 or 11, people saying, oh, you're going to have to, you have to look after your mum now. It's like, holy shit, really? what? You know, who's going to look after me? Right. You know, all that sort of... Yesterday, I had two people looking after me. Yeah. And what? today, I'm in charge. What happened? It's like that escalated, didn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, so... But, but um, and that is kind of what we all sort of had to grow up really, really quickly, which is not awesome for, for kids, but it does... It builds a bit of resilience. Resilience is something I think I've got in spades. It's... Um, learned that from mum how do you how you crawl out of a dark space and 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 live a good life so she was good at, at showing us that um you know even though we all because we're all now adults in the house apparently so we all argued and, and fought like adults so everyone was you know everyone had an opinion everyone was it was a typical irish catholic dinner table it was it was a lot of yelling right so and you said you moved out, you know, reasonably quickly after finishing high school. So, uh, did you? What What were your plans post high school? Did you go to university? Did you do some sort of like? Did you go into a job? What was it? What, what oh, did you do? Okay, well, I mean, reasonably quick, quickly would mean like a couple of years, I suppose. I suppose, okay. um, you know. So, um, I finished high school with probably, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I don't want to boast, but probably some of the worst marks you've ever seen. And uh, <laughs> it was, I thought you were actually going to boast then, and I was fine with that too. But. Nah, I was I was I was all over the shop. I did I was not a I was not a focused uh, student at all. Um, and I knew I really enjoyed performance of some description. I knew I kind of was. Um, I thought maybe I'd become an actor. Or something, and I grew, but I grew up listening to, to to funny guys on the radio, you know, um, you know, guys who did sketch comedy and stuff like that, and I went, oh, that's that's great, and then I realised that was a job, and I and I, I started doing community radio. I was working in retail, like, oh my god, I was I was good at retail because I was good at talking to people's faces, making them feel good about themselves, but I just wanted. I worked in a stationery store, right? Remember WC Penfolds? So that was a, a shop. And I worked in North Sydney, and and I used to remark always to myself that stationery um, was a job going nowhere, right? So, in, and I thought that was just brilliant, uh, hilarious. But um, but it was it was awful. And the best thing about the job was talking to office girls. That was it, and I hated it. And I started doing community radio and thought this is fun. And then um, a girl I was seeing at the time um, said, "Oh, you could apply for this place." So I did. It was the Australian Film, Television, and Radio School. And I didn't know how hard it was to get in because if if I did, I might not have applied. And I got in, and um, from there started a yeah a bit of a radio career, and went off to Moree at the age of I think twenty three, and uh, did a couple of years bush radio. Okay, so tell me about that experience. What's that like? So you're leaving, you're going to like. Did you know anything about Moree? Did you have any connections in Moree, or was it literally I'm packing up my suitcase and I'm moving to Moree to be on the radio? Yeah, it was um, more. I chose Moree because it was the only place that said yes. 
and um, <laughs> it was again not to boast yeah i don't like to be uh, but because i'm of my mates who are going to cool places so like you know like coffs harbor or somewhere on the on the coast and i'm like oh yeah. i want that yeah maury it was an interesting i mean and and what a what an eye-opener for a young bloke um like i'd gone from living in the western suburbs of sydney Never knew uh, an, an Indigenous Australian before I moved to Moree. And then there's 50-50 in that town of about 10,000 at the time. Uh, and got to know uh, people in the community and got to know more about the experience of regional Australia and regional Australians and, and what, what life was like on the land and for, and for uh, first Australians. I, it was a massive eye-opener and I learned so much in that two years not about radio, but about life outside of the city. And um, and what an incredible perspective to have, because this is a huge country, and even though people, most of the people who live here live in cities on the coast, there is, you know, this whole other part of Australia, which is this wide brown land that is populated by all sorts of people, including, you know, a lot of First Australians, well, a lot of First Nations people, I should yeah, yeah. say, not First Australians. And um, so... Uh, I grew up in the country, so I have a bit of an understanding of that, but you and I are very similar ages. Do you remember learning much about First Nations people at like school and high school? Nothing. Like yeah. literally nothing. And even now, I think, because my daughter t- tells me about stuff that my kids tell me about stuff that they learn, they're a little bit, a little bit better. But um, there's, still, there's still so much colonial focus. I'm like, who gives a shit? Like really? Like you don't even have to try to learn colonial history it's it's everywhere like it's just yeah. everywhere it's it's you know um, it's colonial history generally the british sailed somewhere murdered the people who lived there yeah. and said they, they they owned it now yeah the boom end. there it is <laughs> yeah exactly and um and I, I still get criticized you know but in certain areas when you when you get into that because people go oh let's not get political i'm like oh whatever um like <laughs> it's it's still um stuns me that people don't no, it doesn't stun me, actually. It doesn't surprise me at all that people don't understand the experience outside of where they live because no one's showing it to them. So it's not, that's not stunning. It's stunning that it, 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 that it exists, but it, it's not surprising. Um, like, I, um, I, I honestly, people would say, I'd be talking to people and they'd say, oh, it's beautiful weather, you know, we're having this and that. And I was in Moree going, oh, yeah, well, tell that to people who haven't had rain for fucking ages you know beautiful weather and, and i realized all of a sudden i was uh now in someone else's experience and um and realizing that what good weather meant for some people was different for others well also i mean you are the voice of a community that's what a radio mm. show host is particularly in those rural areas yep. you become you know a local identity you are someone who has some degree of influence and power at the very least like working at the local radio station in a country area is influence and you then have to choose how you use that influence or not use that influence or you know what causes you come out for or what you represent or what you host i imagine you get asked to host a whole bunch of things around town and then suddenly you've got to decide what you do and what causes you how much you throw yourself into living in the community yeah and you've got to you've got to watch kind of what you say from the guy from the perspective of a guy who comes from the big smoke mm. you know you got to, i remember actually when i was still at radio school um and it was 1996 when i was at aftrs and um we were doing the, the component on news the same week that the port arthur massacre happened and it was an interesting week to be to be talking about news when that news story was was breaking and it was it was full on and 
And a, and a bit after that was the, the gun amnesty and the gun buyback. And, and that was about the time that we went off to our work attachments. And I went off to Orange to do my work attachment and uh, 2GZ uh, Orange. And the uh, general manager picked me up um, from the from the airport um, I don't know why I flew there. So I could have driven, but um, but picked me up. And as we're driving, um, we got in the car, and he said, "What do you think about this gun thing?" And I'm like, "Oh, you know, like, I, you know, it's probably a good good idea because of what what's what's happened." And, and he's like, "Really? No one's taking my gun away from me." And I'm like, "Okay, yeah. Oh, is it here in the car?" Or, um, <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, you just you you've got to realize it." that people can be polarized by things and you walk a fine line. And then when you're on, on air, even more so, be very careful about how you frame stuff and how you, you know, because you're going to get a reaction. So interesting time living in the country, mm-hmm. but um, there's no temptation to stay in the country at that point. Your your ambitions were always to end up back in the city. Yeah. I really, really wanted to be like in Capital City Radio. That was really mm-hmm. what I wanted to do because that's what I grew up listening to. Um, and I wanted to do, I was always making comedy sketches, always trying to do comedy radio. Mm. Uh, and by the time I kind of was working my way back to the city, um, none of those comedy uh, angled jobs were going to radio announcers. Mm. They were all going to stand-up comedians. All of a sudden, stand-up comedians in the 90s, mid-90s, were the reality TV stars of the 2000s. They were getting all the good radio jobs. Um, you know, and uh, and I went, oh, this is interesting. And a, and a mate of mine um, said, we ever thought about having a go at stand-up comedy? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's pretty scary. Um, but yeah, maybe. In 1999, I did my first stand-up comedy gig because I wasn't seeing the, um, I wasn't seeing the, the opportunities in radio. And I thought, well, let's just give this a go. And I, and I, do you know where it was? Can you remember where your first gig was? Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, and the, the venue still exists as a pub, but not as a comedy venue. Ran for a comedy venue for only about six months. I think it was the off Broadway hotel underneath Broadway shopping center. And, oh, uh, it was yeah, running. I remember that. I remember time. that room for yeah. sure. So that in fact, I'll tell you not when it was running at that comedy club, but it ran in another, uh, iteration at one point. The first time the Mighty Boosh came to Australia, ah, that is where I saw them do their first gig in Australia at wow. that exact same venue. So there you go. Insane. Boosh did their first gig in Australia there. You did your first gig in Australia there. Comedy superstars. I, That's I knew, where they start. I knew we had a lot in common. I do. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> it was, um, so that was it. And then I kind of liked it. Like, I mean, the first one, I didn't go amazingly, but it didn't go badly. Do you remember what you talked about? Yeah. I think I talked about like radio and stuff. I think I, I kind of drew on my um, experience of that uh, and yeah. sort of weaved in it. And, and as any young comic would be, in however old I was then, 24 or 25, I'm not sure, um, you, you tend to, that masturbation gets talked about um, always. Like I don't see many young open micers who don't talk about masturbation. Um, it feels like it's essential. Um, so I mentioned that. It's oh, yeah. funny, isn't it? I, so I was at Lemo's place and he won't mind me tell this story because he's told it on the radio. So uh, his little uh, boy, Laddie, uh, you know, he's got to be, I guess, three, I guess, at the moment. And he's at that point where, so he ran down the stairs naked and then just started like doing a helicopter with his dick. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> just like shaking it around like a helicopter. And 
the adults who were there, we all just found it so funny that he was like, well, this is a bit. And essentially, <laughs> that is the equivalent of every young male stand-up who does talking about masturbation on yeah. stage. Is that three-year-old who realises if he just twirls his dick around like a helicopter, people will laugh. That's it, man. And, and, and what's funny about that is that he's... <laughs> that Limo's probably looking at going, um, this story is going to be in my set now. Like, you know, and... So, oh, yeah. I mean, he's told it on the radio. He yeah. tells it on stage. So, <laughs> Limo's like, yeah, that is funny too. You're it's right. A bit, it's a bit for everyone. It's a bit for the kid <laughs> flicking his wanger around. It's a bit for dad. Like, I've done stories about my, my kids as well, like, you know, where we've... Um, like, we've got a very specific... You know, we're very... Um, like my mum taught me this. She was, you know, very much on scientific terminology, especially for things like penis and vagina. There was no, right. you know, foo 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 was in wee wees and dingaling. So it was all penis vagina. That's what it is. And I kind of carried that on. It's, you know, they're technical terms. Don't be, uh, don't be afraid of them. Just they are what they are. And so, um, put, started putting that out there very early with the kids. Just what it is. And uh, and we were at the park with the kids. I was I was at the park with the kids. Just it was Dad's day there, just doing his thing. And um, my uh, my son, to cut a long story short, my son um, uh, and my daughter were going up and down this s- uh, slide that was made of those rollers, like you, like you put your luggage on and roll them into the thing at the airport. And my my daughter went down on a tummy and she banged the thing. She just jumped up and gone, oh, she was like four, oh my vagina, <laughs> like really loudly, and uh, and everyone's looking at me in the park, like what? Yeah, who? What is this? dad he's hopeless um and then to top it off my, my son who is a year two years younger and he was um having a go and he went down and um on his tummy and 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 everyone he's gone look dad and he's gone down so i can't remember he must have been three and everyone's everyone in the park's just gone quiet to see what would happen now and he's come down jumped off and i went are you okay mate he's like yeah yep yeah, i'm okay and my daughter goes, but how's your penis? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> anyway, so there you go. So Limo's not the only one who's talking about it. Do yeah. your kids know that dad, you know, tells stories about them, you know, to strangers? Yeah. Like, do they get that? Do they understand that? Are they aware of it? Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're, so far they're okay with it. Like, um, there, was a, there was a few years where I had a crack as many comics do just jumping on doing cruise ships um which i, I stopped doing because i just got sick of being on cruise ships <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I actually took the family with me once and uh, and there was like an all ages show i had to do mm. so they came it was the first time they ever saw dad at work and um in look i mean thank god i had a good good set because you know they've got to come home with me and like my dad's such a loser oh my god it's what he died no but um it went well and but a lot of stories about them like those sort of stories and uh and they did that thing where they like pretended to be embarrassed about it but you could tell they kind of liked it you know they were like oh dad so do you tell lots of other stories about me yeah (laughs) which is funny yeah because i used to tell stories about my mum when i was on the radio and and a friend of hers lived in the area near moree and uh, heard me telling a story about mum and mum said oh so you tell stories about me on the radio and she and she loved it she was like oh i'm i'm the center of attention so there's no age limit for uh for ego 
Um, so we're talking about your mum, and so obviously we we talked about when you lost your dad, but like your mum's been a huge part of your life story as well. And um, uh, can you tell me the story of your mum without me leading the witness? Yeah, right. Okay, <laughs> that's all right. Um, I've been I've become good at talking about it in the last week or so, actually. Um, so as you know, I'm 46 years old now, amazingly. Um, but for the last 20 years, um, I guess I've been living, living as a son of um, of 9/11 victim Yvonne Kennedy. So, um, which my mum, wonderful lady that she was, um, was on a retirement holiday in the US. Um, she was about three, four days from coming home, and she got on American Airlines Flight 77 in Washington and uh, and for those who aren't sure the specifics that was the plane that Al-Qaeda crashed into the Pentagon um, and everyone on it died and uh, that is that is the the shitty uh, story that that now is attached to to uh, my mum and my family so that in a, in a nutshell is um, I guess the, the most recent history uh, revolving my mum it's not who she is by the way obviously um, my mum was as we mentioned earlier remarkable strong uh, and uh, and she was actually quite funny uh, she was she was hilarious and would claim every bit of comedy in me came from her <laughs> that's what parents would do you know but um yeah. well I think that's fair she gets to claim the good stuff right like yeah. that's okay I yeah, think yeah. that's a I think you're probably going to do the same when your kids get older if there's anything good there that you can hold on to you can be like that one's from me yeah yeah well my kids both have luscious heads of hair and I know this is yeah. a, a podcast but um <laughs> I'm a I'm fucking bald man it's, it's not it's not me um <laughs> it's passed on the mother's side though isn't it that, I think that I think your baldness might be your mum's fault as well as your good sense of humor so that'd be it That'd be that's what it is. That's it's everyone's fault, but um, but mine. But uh, um, so yeah. obviously, yes, it's the twenty year anniversary of. I mean, look, you, you and I have known each other for a very long time. But uh, my partner Amy saw you being interviewed about this recently. Like, you know, obviously it was the twenty year anniversary of nine eleven, and you know, people had an interest in your mum's story and you to tell that story, and you did. And um, Amy didn't know that we knew each other. She just rang me out of the blue and she said, do you know this comedian Simon Kennedy? I said, yeah, absolutely I do. She goes, I just saw him on the television this morning telling his mum's story and I just thought it was so beautiful and so well told and so respectful and so wonderful. She, she was like, you should get him on the podcast. Now, she occasionally demands people to be on the podcast, um, <laughs> despite the fact that she does not listen to the podcast. <laughs> but she just about once a year has one suggestion. And this is the suggestion for this year because she was so moved by, I mean, I was familiar with the story, obviously, but she wasn't. Um, well, just before we get to some of the other stuff, were you... Are you open? Like, I mean, obviously you went and did interviews. You talked mm. about it. How do you come to that process yourself that this is a story that I want to share and I can go out there and share this story? Yeah, look, it was um, – and a lot of guys in the, in the comedy community know that I didn't talk uh, openly, publicly about it for well, almost 10 years and that was really deliberate. Like I um, wanted privacy for the family. Um, like we've we've had to grieve before, and the best way to grieve is 
is privately. And if everyone's looking at you and talking about you, that is just not helpful. Um, so, you know, it's not, I'm not the only one in my family. So I had, I have to keep, keep that in mind. Um, and, uh, so that was, that was the original reason for, you know, keep keeping us sell ourselves a secret from the media, if that's really what it is, which was weird because at the same time, you know, I was establishing myself as a comedian and trying to get as much attention as possible. So it was actually a really weird, you know, sort of dichotomy of of um, public comedy Simon and private um, grieving Simon and trying to make sure no one drew a line between them. Yeah, and and even as a performer, I, I mean, talk to me about what you think that was like because we often talk about authenticity as being so important as a performer, but it can also be like I actually think that there is often some great value in performing, which is here is just this specific side of me you don't need to get all of me today you don't need all of messy simon or great simon or outrageous simon or yeah passionate about this simon today all you need is the guy who can you know do this voiceover properly or announce this song or you know throw to this person or ask this question sometimes there is a great beauty in that it can you know mean that going to work is a relief you can step away from all the complications you have in your life but after a while does it mean that you feel like you can't fully represent yourself authentically to an audience not that they need to know the story but just the fact that you're keeping the story private they they recognize regardless of whether they know about it or not yeah it's it, it's really tough isn't it it's actually it's, it's actually hard because mm. both are true like um i remember in 2002 um 2002 yeah it was 2002 and like I don't know what the fuck I was thinking, but I was doing a, a Melbourne Fringe Festival show and the whole theme of the show was about ways mm. you can die. Like, uh, like obviously, there was like, hello, right. Dr. Freud. What the fuck? What's going on? But I, I was doing it. Maybe I was working through stuff that way and I was doing publicity for the show. Like, the show had done really well in Sydney. Um uh, it was called the Angina Monologue, so you know I, I started talking about my my dad dying of a heart attack and then going on to other weird weird ways to die. Um, and then I did some publicity when I was in Melbourne for the Fringe, and John Fain on ABC Radio down there was interviewing me, and and he asked some question about um, I think he said something like, you know, so what what did your what did your mum think of this? And I and I I, I remember just being shit scared like, I didn't know what to say I think I said oh no she's passed away and I and I remember just feeling like the blood was draining from me because I'm like oh shit I'm gonna get found out here I don't know what to do and it was it was hard trying to keep those two parts of me separate you know I, I was and it was important that I did I'm kind of glad I did but it was a really hard place to be um, but now I'm comfortable enough to talk openly about her I'm, I'm strong enough that I've, I've, I've built myself back up that I can I, I don't have to lie I don't have to hide it anymore but um but the reason I originally came out and talked openly about it was because I'd been watching the news and it was just when Osama bin Laden had been killed captured and killed and um and I saw a lot of reaction, a lot of reaction from everywhere. And I didn't like what I was seeing. I didn't like the way people were talking about it. I didn't like the way people assumed to know how families would feel about it. And I was like, nah, <clears throat> no, 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 no. This is look, all right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak 
so I did and that's sort of opened the, the floodgates to people wanting to talk to me and um what is it that you wanted to say so what was it that you were seeing people say i think i can imagine but i'd love if you actually said it which is like what was it that people thought families reactions would be that you were reacting to to go hang on i am family and that's not how i feel yeah i I, well i think the the assumption that was being made was oh this would be this would be a a wonderful day for families this is a a day of they'll be have a party have a celebration and it was all that sort of they must be really overjoyed by this or whatever uh and there was a lot of uh college students in america who were going like you know on the streets partying about it that would have been like three years old when it happened or something you know so it was kind of strange but um well maybe not three but you know young and uh i went no 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 that is not that is not don't say that for me don't do that for me so i yeah i i wanted to make it clear that it was a day that was quite uh, mixed in emotion quite um uh, regretful in many ways and i didn't want to see islamophobia i didn't want to see any of that stuff presenting which it was um and that was that was the reason i decided there was a greater good in me talking than keeping quiet and um you know i it's um it's one of those it's this quote that i often find i think it's been attributed to edmund burke and um it was it's basically the only thing that uh is required for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing and i thought yeah look you can't do nothing don't say nothing you've got to say something so um i I chose a safe haven to speak and that was yeah so where did you speak i was going to ask you sky news um You laugh, well, you laugh, well, but it actually was. It actually was because um, one of my best mates, uh, Dave, Dave Spears. One place where you know you won't run into any Islamophobia, yeah. Sky News. I decided that, the, first. The, Bolt, the Bolt Report was the best place for me to talk. Um, and then we sipped whiskey. It was great. No, um, it was actually well, my, one of my best friends. Uh, we went to radio school together. It was Dave Spears. And Dave was... Um, one of the one of the few um, uh, yeah. balanced uh, people yeah. at Sky, and I called him. I said, "Mate, I don't like what I'm seeing, and I, if if you want to hear from me, I'll 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 say something today. I'll talk." So that's what I did. Um, but then it opened the opened the floodgates a little bit. Like, um, and then all of a sudden, everyone was was calling um, my manager and saying, "Oh, okay, can we can we get him? Can we get him?" and and uh, end up doing a couple more, and 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 some I regret. Like I gotta say, I'm like, why did I fucking do that? Like, I, I went on um, mornings with Carrie Ann, and mm. um, and uh, I mean Carrie Ann Kenley, God bless her and her Logie self. Um, um, yeah, not exactly the kind of program. Uh, I got a message from my brother um, afterwards when he, when he he said, I heard you were on Carrie Ann. And he said, haven't we suffered enough? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I think he's joking. I think he's joking. I don't know. (laughs) So now suddenly, as you said, like as you touched on earlier, which I thought was such a good point, which was that your mother's life should be defined by much more than the unusual way in which she died. Unusual and tragic, but... The historical way, mm. you know, there is, it is no less tragic that your dad died of a heart attack than the manner in which your mother died, right? But like the the point being very much that 
one of them has much more public curiosity, is much more high profile. Mm. Was there ever a time where you did give in to any of the... I mean, because you must be angry. You must be so devastated by what has happened. Like, you know, I, I guess the example I would use is... Like, you know, the grandfather who fights in the war against the Japanese and occasionally still calls the Japanese something he shouldn't call the Japanese. But you kind of go, look, he's old and he fought in a war against them. Yeah. And that's, you know, I can see where that comes from. Like, was there any, like, were you always like, I'm not going to blame a whole you know, group of people for this? Or was there a process that you had to go through? I mean, who do you, I mean, because I imagine you're so angry and so sad. Who, where does that anger and sadness go initially? Oh, look, yeah. <laughs> It wasn't a process. I think I, I came to that realization very early, for starters, and I think I can actually thank my mother for that because she was a pretty staunch humanitarian herself, um, uh, which is uh, she she was active within the uh, the Australian Red Cross for like thirty years and um, and would constantly espouse the um, the values of the Red Cross and the neutrality and the humanity and the universality, all those things that um, your Red Cross stands for. So we would hear that all the time as young guys. And, you know, we're like, oh, here she goes again, talking about the Red Cross. And, you know, um, like, uh, honestly, I feel like if I stacked the dishwasher wrong, she'd be quoting the Geneva Convention and, you know, <laughs> how it should be done. But, 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 but that all sank in. It all sank in. And, and I think it also just formed the person I was. I grew up in the western suburbs where... You know, half of my mates were Lebanese, so I, so I wasn't, um, you know, I, I didn't always think of them as the other, you know, as as many people who who didn't grow up around them were doing, and so for me it was really easy to come to this um, this position that is, um, no, I will not uh, tar them all with the same brush. Um, uh, what was the second part of that question? I've forgotten. Hang on. Well, I mean, I, I guess I'm just interested in... Oh, the anger. I mean, we, the anger. Oh, yeah. is, was there anger? I assume there there is anger in that, but I don't know. I've, it's not a circumstance that I've ever found myself in. Yeah. Um, you know, it's... I, I didn't find myself getting angry at, um, at like, Al-Qaeda. I didn't find... Because I think... It just seemed like such a um, such a concept. Uh, it didn't feel personal with with them. Um, I I was we were, we were just stunned and shocked and 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 damaged by it so much. Um, and and look look, I, I find I find the kind of uh, actions repulsive that led to what it is. Um, but I don't know why I don't carry the anger. I, 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 maybe it's just because I know it's not good for me. Um, I, I, I find myself getting more agitated and angry at manipulation um, of our own government sometimes, but, you know, and things like this. Um, you know, using it to go into Iraq or or other various um, stepping up. Um, you know, you're using the fear, uh, you know, against sort of refugees and things like that and that sort of PR campaign I find that even more angry because it's uh, it's like these these are, we're supposed to be these supposed to be the good guys here you know I guess that's why maybe when I see a terror group doing terror it's like to get angry about it sort of like well what do you expect them to do that's what they do um, so maybe the the fact that it's not surprising at all means that well 
you know, yeah, it's exactly what they do. It's just, yeah, it's what they do, and it's also what they want. I mean, acts of terror are designed to bring on the things that were brought on, and I can understand from what you've said about your mum, the idea that her death would be politicised to institute a whole bunch of things that she would have been absolutely against. I can imagine how confronting that would be, and I can absolutely understand why you want to speak out about that and you know, sort of represent her in that way. Does... I mean, you've had a lot of death in your life, right? Like, is death a thing that you think about a lot? Yeah, I um, I have. Like, I think about some of the more the more uh, landmark deaths, right? Um, that would be my father when I was a kid. I uh, lost one of my best friends to suicide in high school. That that was pretty heavy, and that was affected affected me. And then, and then mum, they were almost uh, sort of equidistant from each other. These things, and they all affected me in very different ways. Um, death is something that I, I I accept is is there. It is it is what it is. Um, you know, my own death. Um, how do I feel about that? I think I just want to make sure that I I leave behind. Um, uh, I guess for my kids, especially um, and wider society, that I've that I've done something positive, that I've done something good, you know, that I've I've had a good influence where people look back and they remember that I've made their lives better because that's how I look at my mother, for instance, um, um, and I think you know, thanks, thank you to her for what she did, for the way she brought me up, and 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 I I I've survived because of what she. Put in me and she made the world a better place when she was in it so yeah i don't think i always succeed though you know no. I, you know we all we all um you know and, and you know yeah i i've changed my changed my stance on a lot of things uh, over the years and one is um, my ambitions are very different you know? okay so i love this by the way because people changing their stance on things is mm. like my kink yeah like i absolutely because i think it's the most important thing in the world is the capacity to be able to change your mind you know for a good reason like yeah. sometimes people change their minds for ter- terrible reasons but the idea of coming to a better understanding of constantly evolving of, of that journey to you know get better but also to reprioritize sometimes mm. you know what might have been your main priority as you said in your 20s doesn't need to be your main priority in your mid 40s yeah. so talk to me about something that you've yeah changed about yeah, I think um, a few things, and it's it's all about how you look at what's in front of you and how you choose to, to read it. Um, I remember oh, it would have been in the weeks um, after um, we lost mum, in the, maybe a week even within, um, I, uh, I checked my emails, which didn't happen as often 20 years ago, right? Had to get into the dial-up internet. Uh, and there was an email there from Adam Hills. And um, Adam and I hadn't met hadn't worked together at that point because I was still very fresh in comedy, you know, only a couple of years in. Uh, And he was doing great. Like 20 years ago, he was like getting Perrier Awards and things like that. And he was, people like, who is this guy? Who's this Adam Hills guy? You know, he he was on the up. He was well and truly on the up. And I got this email of of condolence from him, um, really kind, uh, kindly worded email. Um, So he must have sought out my email address from someone and, and sent it. And I said, I was looking at it, reading it. And because you know what you're like in your first couple of years or few years of comedy, you're extremely ambitious. You think you're the best fucking comic ever and that everyone else is a hack. And anyone who's successful, you know, that maybe isn't necessarily your jam, doesn't deserve to be there. 
and I had that arrogance. I had that ego as well. And I thought, I'm, I'm so good. You know, why aren't I the star? And I got this email uh, with no agenda and I read it and I went, you know what? Um, it's time to, to reframe how you look at your so-called competitors. Um, they're not competitors. They're just other guys doing something that they like doing and you like doing. You're not competing with them because you're not them. They're not you. Um, and and I, I just took a step backwards and, and thought, I will have, you know, ambitions to a point, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to walk over people to get there. I'm not going to uh, get angry at other people's success. I'm not going to let that shit consume me. Um, everyone is successful for one reason or another. And if, if I, if I get there, it'll be for my reason and that's okay. And so that started a change for me, um, which was one of the best things that could have ever happened to me um, because yeah, it's you, the best thing that could happen to anybody as is, a comedian, especially as a comedian, God. these people are not your enemies. They are your colleagues. They yeah. are your friends. They are the people that hopefully you'll get to work with when you're successful or yeah. give opportunities to when you're successful. They're not. And if they're better than you at the moment, you know what that is? Great incentive for you to get better at what you do. So you can be as good as them. Like uh, they, yeah. it, it is the gift that you have to come to in your own time. You have to come to that understanding in your own time. But I wish that I could just go around open mic rooms and like touch open micers on the head and just give them that knowledge. Yeah. I'm glad you said on the head. But it- It'd be a conundrum if I had the capacity to give them that knowledge, but there was only one spot on the body. Yeah. That, you, know, you will have to touch them directly on their asshole. Try just and, like right there. Try and convince them. It's true. Some of them would go for that, but I, I actually, yeah. And it's, it's interesting even now, like I go, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do, I'm going to do the comedy that I like, the comedy that yeah. I believe in, the stuff As you that's should. my truth. And if the wider populace d- d- says, yes, um, yeah, you're the zeitgeist right now, we'll go with you, then so be it. If they don't, then that's that's that. I mean, I've stopped trying to be, um, and for many years I, I was, you know, trying to work out what do people want? What do they want? You know, what do the producers want? What do the agents want? What do they, and no, I don't give a fuck. I don't care. Um, I just do what I like, and I make people happy in the rooms. I, every most, you know, ninety nine percent of the time when I walk out of a comedy room, I've um, I've left things in a good good way, and that is all I can hope for. I'm not gonna, you know, I can't, uh, I can't wave a wand, and yeah, so. You can't control shit that is beyond your control. But the thing that you can control is the type of art and comedy you make. Yeah, And if if it's authentic to you and it's what you want to say, I mean, I I hope that that's what this next period of comedy is going to be, that so many people will realise because in the time we've been alive, comedy has really changed. Like when we first started out, really, as you said, it was starting to become a thing, but it was still a bit running away to join the circus. Now, over those 20 years, it has become an industry where people would go into comedy and go, I could have a million dollar job in comedy at some stage on like radio or television or like, you know, it's a career path. You know, there are all these different things you can do. You can write, you can produce, you can, you know, there's a million jobs, you know, in the comedy industry. And we started, I think, to look at it like an industry. And I think that this has been a period where the industry went away. And I think that we've, a lot of people have realized, oh, why was I trying to fit into something to play this old school game. And I hope that out of this period, we're just going to have 
so many people just go fuck it i'm just going to make the sort of comedy and art that i want to make and it'll fall where it falls yeah it's e- it's easy it's it's easy at our age i think isn't it sometimes when yeah. like it, uh, to say that and i acknowledge that fact that i i can make a i make a good living out of comedy um you know because I'm, I'm i'm i hit a certain age where i could actually go and do corporate events because i and and corporate events for a lot of people are scary like they're like i hate them and i get why they hate them um, because um, they can be a bit stiff. They're not like they're not comedy audiences. But I, I worked out that if you're under a certain age, then corporate audiences hate you no matter what. Yeah. Anyway, they don't like young upstarts. I think when I was in my thirties, mid maybe mid thirties, all of a sudden they went, "Oh yeah, he, that could be me. Yeah, he he knows me. He looks like he's." His wife gives him a hard time. Yeah. He's not He's not going to make some reference that I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, but I, but I wasn't doing new jokes. I was. I mean, I was doing new jokes, but I wasn't doing <laughs> yeah. vastly different stuff. It was just that I was, I was at an age yeah. where they're like, okay, I'm ready to listen to you, mate. And yeah. I'm like, okay, well, I will make a living out of this then. I will yeah. I will do that and pay some mortgage. Thank you very much. Um, so, uh, so it's easy when I'm comfortable. To, to say this stuff I know at a certain age where you get a bit more relaxed about shit um, yeah so to say I wish I'd known it back then uh, is a waste of time because I wouldn't have I didn't you know right yeah exactly there's I can say this out loud as many times on this podcast and there'll be young comedians listening to it just going he doesn't know what he's talking about Hack. and then one day about about 15 years from now you'll go oh fuck he did know what he was talking about yeah yeah <laughs> And and I remember I remember being at the back of comedy rooms, seeing guys who were well, me back then, like you know, um, yeah. uh, you know, headliners who had had been around a long time and knew how to how to work the audience, um, and sitting back there going, "Fucking hack! What a hack! You know, what a yeah. hack!" And I realised, what am I? What does that even mean? What does that even mean? So what is it? Oh, it's so experienced. Who needs that? Yeah. You know? He's so good at entertaining this audience. Yeah. Look at all the fun they're having. Look at them, look at them <laughs> laughing at him. What a bunch of idiots. They're laughing at him. Um, yeah. So, And now I'm that guy. I'm that the hack maybe. I don't know. And I don't care. Yeah. yeah well, you either die an edgelord or you live long enough to become the hack. <laughs> that is <Yeah>. the <laughs> comedy story. Woohoo. Um, so uh, I ask people on this show whether they have a life philosophy and uh, I haven't specifically asked you that yet. Do you have a life philosophy of any kind? I do. Um, uh, and it's basically own, own your flaws and admit to them. Uh, it's, something I, it's something I did for, my, for myself and I think it makes me better and makes me help, helps me to get better at whatever I'm doing, uh, especially in relationships, um, whatever kind of relationships they are, like really intimate or you know parental whatever admit when you've fucked up it's a really refreshing thing to do other people really appreciate it and it gives you the opportunity to 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 make things better like i would say you can't you can't fix something unless you admit it's broken um so just say and uh, i do that um a lot i i say sorry a lot I say I did the wrong thing a lot. I even apologize to my kids. I mean, no adult ever apologized to me, um, ever. And I do it for my kids. I say, guys, I uh, went off the hook, the handle a bit there. I, I, I flew off the handle and I'm and I went too far. And I was you know, and I'm sorry you didn't deserve that. And I, yeah, and I'll try better. Uh, so admit when you've when you've made a mistake. Um, it's really refreshing, um, personally and professionally. You know. Because uh, 
you know, say, I did this. Um, what could have been better about it? You know, it's okay. That's that's my philosophy is admit when you're wrong and, and just own it. Uh, I ask people uh, what they think happens when we die. I mean, I'm interested in what your thoughts are on that. Oh, jeez. Um, look, I mean, I grew up in a, in a Catholic family, you know, um, going to church, going to Catholic school and, you know, all that stuff where, where God was the, uh, the, the, the operative word. Um, do I believe in a God? Not really. No. Do I believe in something afterwards? Maybe. I think maybe. I don't know what it is, um, you know, exactly. Some sort of transfer of energy. I don't know. Um, what, all what, I... what would you like it to be? Like if, <clears throat> regard, not what do you think it might be, because mm. no, I guess no one knows the answer to that, but what would you like it to be? Oh, I, I think I'd like it to be, I'd, li- I'd like it to be something so good that I can't understand it now. Yeah. That That would be ideal mm-hmm. something yeah, yeah. that something that that you know I, th- I think i mean if you if you do think about things that are written in bibles um you know that is you know the was it the eye the the heart doesn't know what the eye hasn't seen i think it might be uh, some sort of a quote some sort of quote it's yeah paraphrase <laughs> it's some sort of quote um but um yeah yeah so um and, and I, I just um i think i know enough i call myself kind of agnosticish. i don't know and I think that anyone who's hardcore religious or hardcore atheist is actually going a, a little bit two balls in because neither of them know. And I think it's good to say, I don't know. Yeah, um, there's, there's, and, there's, it's a very certain position to have on something there's absolutely no evidence of. <laughs> yeah. Like, I honestly do think that hardcore atheists criticizing hardcore religious people yeah. are, are, are just as delusional. Yeah, because because they're like, they know. I know for a fact there's nothing. You don't fucking know. No one knows. So I'm just gonna die and see what happens. You know, die with a smile on my face. <laughs> well, when when are you at your best? Like if if I, if if it's you know your best day, what does that look like? Ooh, do you mean when I'm? I'm would you say when I'm at my happiest or? I, you can define it however right. you want to define it. Because, I mean, I honestly think sometimes when I'm at my, at my happiest is, is when nothing is particularly happening. Um, like for me, I think, you know, the, the best situation, the best, the most happy you can be, the best you can be um, is um, when you're devoid of misery. Like that, when you, when you know, no, no, no pain, um, uh, no loss, you get a feeling of just everything. What I've got here is all I need. That's 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 the best situation for me. It doesn't have to be the best meal. It doesn't have to be anything. Or you know, sometimes it might be. It's just a case of going. You know what? I, I've got what I need, and and this is all right. Uh, okay. So I, I, if you had unlimited funds, mm. what would your day look like? Oh, look, oh, so you don't have to worry about work. You don't have to worry about like yeah. paying for anything. Like you can live your life, whatever. What does your day look like? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I would have, I'd live on the harbour because that's awesome. Um, yeah. That'd be great. I wouldn't have a boat because I get seasick. Um, but um, 
but I'd look at the water. <laughs> that would be good. Um, and if unlimited funds, you know, I would probably uh, make sure everyone was looked after. But I would make, but without being that, all that sort of altruistic, I would you know, feed the poor business, which is, you know, that's that's. Yeah, no, let's take that as a given. Yeah, yeah, we've yeah. got unlimited funds. We're feeding yeah. the poor and housing everybody and whatever. But yeah. this is just. Selfishly. I want to know what your day is selfishly. Okay. Yeah. Selfishly, I would probably um, make make films um, and TV programs. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I love I love writing. I love creating characters, uh, and I would just um, yeah produce what the hell I wanted to produce. I mean, it's one thing about um, the arts is that there are gatekeepers to um, to what you want to do. Um, whether you're an actor or whether you're a writer, you know, you have to go through the gatekeepers um, and those gatekeepers. Well, yeah, you know. the gatekeepers are financial gatekeepers yeah, essentially these days are. because there's like in regard to, there's plenty of opportunities like in, yeah, because people go, well, hang on, can't you just like, you know, podcast or YouTube or whatever? I said, you can if you've got a little bit of disposable cash of your own, you're probably not going to make any money out of it. You're not going to be able to put the finances into shooting something amazing because you don't have the money. The gatekeepers these days that we talk about are the people who have the bags of money, Yeah, right? Totally. If you want to make a film, you've got to find someone with a bag of money or several people with smaller bags of money to believe in what it is that you want to do because you can't do that yourself still. Totally. And you, you do see sometimes a movie is made just because someone's got a lot of money. Just yep. because someone, you know, and that's uh, and that's fine. So I would do that. I would make the things I want to make. I would create the things. I mean, at the moment, I, I write things and, and create things that I think are within the realms of possibility. So I, it, all my creativity, um, no matter how clever I think I can be, I still um, work within constraints of um, of potential. You know, then like a, you know, don't don't um, don't come up with with that concept. It's in the back of your head, but don't do that one now. Do something that is probably more within reach. So I would be going for the things that are so far out of reach right now. I would be, I'd be creating the, um, you know, that aliens movie tr- crossed with Goonies. I would be um, doing. <laughs> <laughs> I would be coming up with all those things. Going, okay, nothing's going to stop me making this one. You know. What's the best or worst piece of advice that you've ever got in your life? Oh, okay. Oh, god. Um, shit. Um, here's the thing. Do I pay attention to advice and then remember it? Um, well, that's also a, a, I mean, if your answer is that you don't take advice either way, I'm fine with that as an answer. I'm just interested. Actually, I'll give you what it is and it'd be, be from my wife. Um, and, and it's a bit of, um, you know, if you, you get, you do what you've always done, you get what you've always gotten. Um, and she's really um, been a great mentor for that for me. Um, often I will go, you're wrong, you don't know what you're fucking talking about, and then I'll realize she was right because <laughs> um, taking advice from your partner is sometimes fraught with danger. But no, that would be – she would be um, the best advisor in that sense, and that is if you don't ask, you don't get. That's the other one, and, and she says that to me all the time. If you don't ask, you don't get – and um, which is funny because I'm right now looking at my <laughs> looking at my laptop, and there are post-it notes. She's stuck all over my um, thing. That <laughs> for me to ask you, I'll, I'll show. I, I won't say it on. You, you can. It's. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you choose to to say what that says. It says, when can I be on your show? That's what she put. 
she said, are you going to ask him? And I went, well, um, I don't know if that's appropriate. And she, she goes, you don't ask, you don't get. Um, that's, that's the I advice. would say, not that I, not that I actually want to, you know, to open up the, <laughs> the show will be done by the time people hear this. So, uh, but I don't want to open up my DMs to everybody. But like, that's of course, funny. when you have it, when you have a show that, um, uh, your comedians are on which I do question everything on the ABC you can catch it on iView um, we're starting to get good at it I thought last night's episode when we're talking was the best one we've done so far so um, obviously comedians you know there are some comedians who will ask you and like you know, go out of their way to say yeah send you an email or send you a message to say hey I, you've got a new show would you consider me to be part of it um, I always say to them it is absolutely fine that you asked Absolutely. I think it's all, I've never once been put off by the fact that somebody asked the question and normally in response, if they message me, I will also respond in as honest a way as I can to why they are or are not being considered because I've always thought that it's just better to hear honestly because most of the time, as you said earlier, it's not about you. You know, like this is the thing that you kind of realized early on is that the reason someone gets picked for something is often... The show needs a certain mix of people, demographics of people, ideas of people, what they're trying to achieve, blah, blah, blah. And you might be sitting at home thinking, fuck, all my friends have been booked for this show and they haven't asked me, what's wrong with me? I'm a terrible comedian. And you might not know that it was like, no, 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 you were on like the 100 last week and we're not using people who were on the 100 last (laughs) week. Do you know what I mean? Like it may may never have anything to do with you. So I always say to people, yeah, ask. Yeah, I, I one thing about my career, and you know, I worked in in radio, and I'm I'm not in radio as such anymore. Um, mm. And uh, I, I was at with with the Nova Network for like seven years or something. And what, if I have one regret about my time there, is I should have just asked for what I wanted more. And that's one thing mm. you like you talk about. My wife, you don't ask, you don't get. Just ask. And what's the worst that happens is they say no, then you're still where you were. Like it's not like you go backwards all of a sudden. Um, you're in a better position to where you were because now you have information right and with that and often I will say to someone I responded to someone the other day who asked about why they hadn't been considered for the show and I said you actually were you're one of the definitely one of the people who was in our list of people we discussed and here was what the concern about your performance was in the room and I said I just passed this on you can do with whatever you want with this information but this is the area that to do a show like ours you know, you'd need to be better at. That does not mean that that is right for you as a performance thing. It might not suit your style. It might not be good advice for other shows. Like it is literally just for what works for what we're trying to do. Here's where we didn't think that you you would work. And then at least that person knows and they can go, well, that's they're wrong or they're stupid or whatever, but. Yeah. And it's a challenge for performers is that mm. when you get that, you know, when someone says, yeah, not right for our show and you go, uh, well, what can I do to be right for it? You know, it's like, and and it's like, no, don't. You know, it's like you've got to stay your course. Like, and that's one thing we talk about that you've learned over the years, and that is, if if I'm not right for the 100, then I'm not right for the 100. Um, just being on, just trying to get on everything isn't the answer. You've got to be do your thing and and do it well and like doing it. And if the zeitgeist goes. Yeah, this guy looks like he's having fun. This guy looks like he's comfortable and confident. Then maybe they come to you. Don't they? They can smell someone trying to be 
something else a mile away. Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at someone, I always, the example I always use is Denise Scott. Oh, yeah. Denise Scott isn't trying to be anyone other than Denise Scott. And if you wrote down on a page what people want for panel shows and comedy shows, it wouldn't be like an elderly woman, essentially, right? (laughs) But because she's so good at being her, she found her own space and she became like a person that everybody wanted to use because she was just very funny and very good at being her and very comfortable with just being who she is. Yeah, and I think that's a good advice for anyone is that don't give a shit. That's good advice. Like, don't Mm. give a shit. And eventually people will want you for that. Like, I reckon that's the secret. Like, don't... I mean, you know, like, again, this is a meta example of it, but the probably the greatest example of it in recent history is Hannah Gadsby and what happened with Nanette, right? She got to the point where she literally was like, I don't give a shit. Like, I'm going to quit. Like, and so I'm just going to say everything that I've ever wanted to say as an artist. And then, of course, everyone was like, there was a zeitgeist moment, you know, it, like you said, it coincided with the moment where the world was having that conversation and her show was like an emblem of the conversation the world was having and then suddenly she's the, you know, biggest Australian stand-up comedian of all time. Yeah, and I think I've, I've felt that in the last week or so myself, although, you know, talking about the lead-up to the, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I mean, I have spoken about it in the past, but I've always let the interviewers lead the way you know take me and, I, and i've never really enjoyed where it's gone it's always been tell us about that yeah. sad time and this and that um and and the last week or so maybe it's just the age i'm at maybe it's because i don't give a shit anymore and i'm going to talk about what i want to talk about i can talk about what i think is important talk about things like it's not comedy of course but mm. it's uh, as as a person who's putting something out there yeah. i'll tell you what i want to talk about i mean i can't change how they chop things up but no, but here's what I'm not just here to answer your questions. I'm here with something to say. Yeah. And for me, it was like, A, I'm going to pay tribute to my mother, who was amazing. And B, I'm going to talk about how you can you can overcome shit and you can come out of it the other side and you come, come out of it happy, whatever that may be. And right now, for people in lockdown struggling with that, you know, I can get out there and say, hey, guys, you know what? Um, there's light at the end of this tunnel and you guys are probably doing it far better off than a lot of people so remember that and you know see you on the see you on the other side of it um and yeah so once again don't i i i'm not trying to tap dance for anyone anymore i couldn't care less one final question mate this has been brilliant by the way what can we plug by the way like where where can people you know find anything that you want to plug well, look, if you want to read my sad story, which, you know, has um, has a, a happy ending of sorts, I do. I did write a book, 9-11 and the Art of Happiness, and it's on, um, you know, it's easy. Get it on Amazon if you want. That's easy. And there's an audio book if you can't read, which I, which I, <laughs> which I narrated myself in lockdown because I had time. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that, gee, how long did it take you to narrate your audio book? Fuck, so long. So long because I was, I, I kept going, no, that's not good enough. I'll do that bit again. Um, it's like, it's almost nine hours of audio. So, uh, you know, bloody hell. So, and I also, I wrote two new chapters as well. So I really used my lockdown time. But if you want something frivolous, you know, I do have a, a stupid podcast, which is uh, sketch comedy, basically. It's called uh, Historically Inaccurate. And uh, it's basically just me interviewing myself um, as different characters talking about history, which is all factually wrong. 
Well, speaking of history, this is the final question that we always ask, which is, I have a time machine. I can take you any point in history, but also any point in the future if you want to go forward rather than backwards, I don't mind. You do not have to, again, this is a selfish question. You don't have to go back and you know, murder baby Hitler or any of those sort of things unless you are particularly passionate about mur- murdering baby Hitler, in which case that's fine. But uh, <laughs> each to their own. But you can do whatever you want with this time machine. Firstly, would you go forward in time or would you go back in time? Wow. Look... If I went back in time, it'd be it'd be for some nostalgia, you know. It would be just to maybe go back to to when you know. To be honest, when you know, mum and dad still alive, little kids just just loving it. Um, which, but it'd be weird because you know I'd be forty six and I'd turn up <laughs> turn up at the house and they go, "Who the fuck are you?" Oh no, I just want to hug. Get away from me. So that would not play out so well. So maybe let's go to the future. Let's go like a thousand years in the future. Um, I don't think it'd be good. <laughs> it wouldn't be nice. Whatever I'm going to see is going to be bad. But but I'm curious. I'm curious. I mean, a thousand is very optimistic. Yeah. We sometimes have people go forward, but they're normally only going forward 50 or 100 years because yeah. a thousand just feels like who knows what you would find in a thousand years. You know, mate, you may be right. Maybe I should just go 20 years ahead, yeah. work out what to invest in. Yeah. Bitcoin, I don't know. <laughs> Zoom, I'm not yeah. sure. That yeah, is, that, Biff from Biff from Back to the Future. That's right. That's the, that's the approach. Yeah, the Trump the Trump model. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, Simon, thank you so much for doing this today, mate. A pleasure, mate. <laughs>